Well, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here this morning and Merry Christmas to you. It's so appropriate. I couldn't think of anything more appropriate than to celebrate the coming of Christ on the Lord's day. So you can open up your Bible to Matthew chapter one, Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and we'll spend a a standalone week here in this text. And as you're turning there, let me again reiterate the fact that this is a wonderful occasion. This is a wonderful occasion as we celebrate the birth of our Lord on the Lord's Day. And uh, many say, as the saying goes, that Jesus is the reason for the season or put the Christ back in Christmas. Well, then I don't think there could be anything more appropriate than what's happening today. And it also makes it impossible for us to have any real legitimate reason to be anywhere else. And so today is more than a celebration. It's more than a time of gifts and a time of meals. It's a time that's dedicated to the worship of Christ. And it's a day to reaffirm what we believe about Christ. And so some might object to the tradition of today. Uh, Some might object to celebrating this tradition, citing that nowhere is it commanded to be observed in the Bible. That is true. The Bible nowhere commands us to celebrate this day as a church ordinance. Or maybe even objecting to the tradition of today, citing its Catholic origin, uh, hence Christ Mass. Others, maybe it's pagan influences. And even others, maybe that the date is inaccurate. But as in other things, for the Christian, as we see in really Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, It matters not so much its origins as it does what is meant by your participation currently. And that's true for other holidays as well. 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14 give us these principles. It matters not so much of its origin for the Christian, but it matters what is meant by our participation today And Protestant, Reformed, Bible-believing Christians throughout church history have held this day as a day to remember the birth of Christ, to give specific remembrance, a special focus to the birth of Christ annually, to reaffirm it, to assess our own lives, to remember it, to repent even during this season of sin, to worship Christ appropriately. And all this in light of the virgin birth, the virgin birth, what we call the incarnation, the incarnation. Incarnation means literally enfleshed, enfleshed, or to take on flesh. Incarnation means the divine becomes human. 
the divine becomes human. And that's exactly what we read in John 1, verses 1 through 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation. Listen, the eternal son of God became the son of man. The eternal Son of God became the Son of Man. The doctrine of the Incarnation, it is crucial to biblical Christianity. It's as crucial to biblical Christianity as is the innocence and the perfect life of Christ. It's as crucial to Christianity as the substitutionary death of Christ as the resurrection of Christ, as the ascension of Christ, and as the return of Christ. In fact, the incarnation of Christ is the foundation that holds all of those other doctrines together. The incarnation of Christ couldn't be more significant. J.I. Packer said this, The incarnation makes sense of everything else in the entire New Testament. You see, without the incarnation, the rest of Christianity falls apart. It falls apart. Now, why is that the case? Well, that's what I want to make clear this morning. That's what I want to make clear to you this morning, which is why I've entitled this message, The Significance of the Incarnation. The significance of the incarnation. And this, I believe, by God's providence, is sort of working in tandem with the teaching from the last Lord's Day. If you weren't here, we looked at the significance of the resurrection because where we're at in Luke's gospel, we're about to cover the account of the resurrection. 
So we took a week on the front side to understand its significance so it can be weighing in our minds as we walk through the actual account. And if you weren't here, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that um, on our website or on a podcast so that you can have really two sermons that you could use as resources to understand both of these crucial doctrines. You can have understanding for the first crucial act of Jesus' earthly life, the incarnation, and understanding of Jesus' last crucial act on earth, the resurrection. And so indeed, the incarnation, the perfect life, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, they all have to be taken together. They can't be separated or parsed. They must not be viewed in isolation As you'll hear this morning, because the incarnation, for instance, is the first crucial step towards Christ's salvific work. He came to earth to save sinners. This is all together. Just as the resurrection completes Christ's saving work, the incarnation makes it possible. The resurrection completes Christ's saving work. The incarnation makes it possible. Makes it possible. So, we have to keep it in light of everything else that Christ has done, but we can understand it specifically. So, when we talk about the incarnation, we are essentially talking about three different aspects. And those aspects are going to serve as our headings this morning. Three aspects. When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it speaks to, number one, the deity of Christ. Number two, it speaks to the humanity of Christ. And number three, it speaks to the fulfillment of Christ. The deity, the humanity, and the fulfillment. That's what we are saying when we talk about the incarnation. So, This rises to the top in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which is why this is a perfect text. It rises to the top in so many other scriptures, but here really all in one place, all in one place. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, that's the text that I asked you to turn to earlier. So let's read. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And this is a wonderful time together that we get to just spend here on Christmas morning understanding the incarnation. So let's enjoy this time together as we begin by reading this. Verse 18, Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What a passage. This is the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, we won't cover all of its aspects this morning as we would if we were moving sequentially through this book. But we'll cover its essential teachings, its meaning, and its purpose. And its purpose is the doctrine that's being made known here, which is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of that section. Namely, his deity, his humanity, and his fulfillment. That is what is being made clear in that section. So let's cover each of these in this section and understand the implications of each. The first thing we note in this birth narrative is the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Verse 18, it reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to the son and she called his name Jesus. Matthew is making clear here the incarnation, which is God becomes flesh. Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. He makes clear that Joseph did not know Mary until after his birth. Verse 18 says, when they were betrothed or when they were espoused before their marriage was consummated. Verse 18 says, before they came together. Verse 25 says he didn't begin the continual act, literally, of knowing her until the birth. 
In other words, he did not have a true earthly father. He did not have a true earthly father. He was born of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, Jesus, or the Messiah, the Christ, was called the branch of Jesse. But in other places, he is called the branch of Jehovah. He had an earthly mother, and he had a heavenly father. He was begotten, not made. That means he existed before this point. And if he had two human parents, he would have inherited a sinful nature. He would have inherited the curse of Adam. If he had no human parents, by the way, he wouldn't be fully human. And so he has a nature that is divine. Verse 23, it says that he is born of a virgin. He is said to have the name Emmanuel, verse 23 which means God with us. Jesus was not his heavenly name. It became his name at his birth, signifying what he came to do, which is to save sinners. Emmanuel was the title that was to be given to him to be his on earth from centuries past. The last two letters of the name Emmanuel being L are part of the name for God, Elohim. And they're used, those two letters, for his other names. For instance, El Shaddai. And so El, meaning God, and then Emmanuel which means with us, a word that is used in connection with the temple or the tabernacle, which literally signifies God's presence. So God is present among his people. He tabernacled among us. He was present. This was not a name that he was to be called as an earthly name but it was to be used as an identification, an identification, God with us, the presence of God among his people. On earth, Jesus maintained his complete divine essence or nature. He was truly and fully God, truly and fully man. In Philippians 2, verse 6, another section which makes clear his divine and human natures, and we're going to look at that more in just a moment, it says that he was in the form, morphe in the Greek, of God, meaning nature or essence. In other words, he was God. And he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. This, is, this part here is, again, speaking of his essence. 
And it means that he didn't have to forcefully hold on to his essence. It couldn't change. He was in the form of God, the nature, the essence of God. But it wasn't something that needed to be grasped. He couldn't lose it. In the Greek, you didn't have to, he didn't have to forcefully hold on to it. Though he would willingly give up his divine privileges, he would never be able to lose his divine essence and nature. That's what's being said there. And so just as in a sense, you and I can't change our nature as humans. In becoming a man, his internal divine essence would remain the same. John 17, 5 speaks of his pre-existing divine glory. Hebrews 1, 3 says, manifest in his incarnation, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1, 6 says, when he came into the world, since he is the God of creation in all things, all of God's angels should be worshiping him. John 14, 14, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray to him. During his time on earth, Jesus was worshiped. Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. While on earth, Jesus claimed to be God. He said, before Abraham was, I, what? Am. Jesus on earth maintained his full divine essence and nature. While on earth, we even see his divine characteristics. His eternality. His glory. His grace. His holiness. His love, his mercy, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his wisdom, his authority, his righteousness, his truth, his sovereignty, his perfection, his resurrection. And you have text floating around identifying all of those divine attributes that you see in Jesus while he's on earth. Colossians 2.9 says, In him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. That's amazing. The incarnation of Christ speaks to his deity while on earth. The second member of the Trinity was enfleshed, literally. This is not God the Father. There's a belief system called modalism, where God just changes from the Father to the Son to the Spirit. That is not true. There's three distinct persons in the Trinity. This is the second person in the Trinity, God the Son, being enfleshed. God taking on flesh. It's a miraculous conception of virgin birth of the one who preexisted, the one who is begotten, not made, and truly divine while on earth. And listen now, friends, this doctrine is absolutely essential. Why? Well, first of all, 
These won't be up on the screen, but you can listen close. It fulfills scripture. It fulfills scripture. It proves it, the, the scripture's trustworthiness. The Old Testament speaks of a virgin's birth. And the Old Testament speaks of God coming to his people. The incarnation, therefore, speaks to the deity of Christ, which is significant that he is fully divine because it fulfills scripture. Secondly, it demands the preexistence of Christ. If incarnated, not made, he existed before he came to earth. Number three, it guarantees Christ's sinlessness. This is the big one. As divine, he is able to perfectly fulfill God's perfect law. No one else could fulfill this. No one else could keep God's law perfectly. It guarantees his sinlessness, which leads to number five, or number four, I think. Number four. Next time I'll put these on the screen so I can follow along. Because it guarantees his sinlessness, there can be substitutionary atonement. He can be an innocent substitute to make atonement for sin in order to save sinners. He must be innocent or else he has to pay for his own sin. He must be innocent to fulfill God's law. He must be innocent for God to be the just and the justifier, punishing sin and justifying those who are redeemed through it. He must be innocent for God's wrath to be poured out on sin. And he must have an eternal capacity to bear this sin, to pay for sin for all time. And so his innocence allows him to be a substitute. God is gracious in the sense that he said there can be, you can avoid God's judgment through the death of an innocent substitute. That's God's grace and God's justice and his mercy and his justice in allowing that. And Jesus then comes to perform that. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, and this is really the quintessential verse for substitutionary atonement. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Without the incarnation guaranteeing the deity of Christ There is no perfect, innocent substitute. If Jesus has two sinful parents, he has a sinful nature himself. He has no innocent life. And there must be payment for his own sin, and he cannot make atonement for sin. But there's more. The incarnation and therefore Christ's deity, number five, enables the rest of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. The incarnation enables 
all of Jesus's earthly ministry, the miraculous work, the teaching of divine truth. This is only possible by God. Number six, it enables his bodily resurrection. It enables his bodily resurrection. Only the man who is God can overcome what? Death. He can pay the penalty and he can rise. He can bear the eternal wrath of God and live. It is the only way for the penalty of sin to be fully paid. And without, number seven, without the incarnation, without the deity of Christ, there's no bodily ascension of Christ and there's no bodily return of Christ. And so you see the incarnation is significant because it affirms the full deity of Christ, which has absolutely crucial implications. This is genius. This is wonderful. And God has performed this. But 1 Timothy 3.18 says, listen now, that he, this divine person, the son of God, was manifested in the flesh, which leads us to our second point. The incarnation speaks to the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. Now, this is wonderful. Look back at our text. I want you to notice first what precedes our verses in verses 1 through 17. It gives us this genealogy a human genealogy through Joseph's line. You can read it later and get mixed up on all the words. But 1 through 17 in Matthew's first chapter here gives us the genealogy through Joseph's line. Though he is not Joseph's biological son, Joseph is his legal father. Joseph is his legal father. And with Joseph being a descendant of David... Jesus has the legal right to rule. The Old Testament promise is fulfilled. The royal line is passed down to Jesus legally. By the way, Luke's genealogy account is different. It gives us the human genealogy through Mary's line, who, by the way, is also a descendant of David establishing Jesus' right to rule not only legally, but also through physical descent. If he was only a descent through his legal father, some might say he is illegitimate, not being of the physical line. If he was only a descendant through the woman, some might say he's illegitimate, not being from the male headship line. But of course, neither can be said because he is the descendant, he is the descendant both legally and physically. And of course, this Davidic de- descent was required, and it was a required expectation of the Messiah. Because of the Davidic covenant found in Second Samuel chapter 7. By the way, these genealogies, in case you didn't know, were public record. And it's really important to be noted that nowhere ever... In Jesus' life, with all of his claims to Messiahship, to be the Christ, never did anyone ever question his lineage. 
In doubting his Messiahship, no one ever said, but you didn't come through the line of David. Because these were public records. And that was irrefutable. Never did anyone question this lineage. There was no refuting it. By the way, he's also Abraham's descendant, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant established in Genesis chapter 12. And it could just go on. He fulfills all of it. Now, all that to say, Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17 has its focus on Jesus's humanity. And as we get to verse 18, the transition begins to focus also on his deity. Remember, as I told you, the focus here in Matthew chapter one is the incarnation, namely the humanity and the deity and the fulfillment of Christ. But as we get to verse 18, his humanity is still very present, which is what I want to point to here. And it's why this text is so enlightening, because we saw how it points us to the deity of Christ. But it also points to this humanity regarding the incarnation. The incarnation makes these two natures possible, and they're made clear here. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ. This is a literal physical birth. And it took place in this way when his mother, his physical, earthly, human mother, had been betrothed or espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. She is really and literally and truly pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dreams, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her. She had truly a child in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. A true birth of a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not in a continual way. Until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name, they called his name Jesus. The divine then is born as a man. Both natures full. Both natures true. One does not swallow the other. Both fully intact. Christ's deity is undiminished. Yet Christ's humanity is unexalted. His deity undiminished, his humanity unexalted. There's no confusion. There's no change to one nature or the other. There's no division of either. And yet there's no separation of the two. It isn't that sometimes he is man and sometimes he is God. He is one theoanthropic, meaning God-man person. That's amazing. You see, the incarnation is God manifesting himself in human flesh. The virgin birth is the means by which this is accomplished. 
The incarnation is the big picture man, a God becoming flesh. The virgin birth is the means by which that is accomplished, yielding this hypostatic union. And then, listen now, friends, he is at this point and forever from this point. The God-man. The God-man. So in the incarnation, the divine son becomes a man. He maintained his full divine nature, yet yielded the, listen now, he yielded the independent exercise of his divine attributes to his heavenly father. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, is really the base text to make sense of this for you. So I want to turn there for a moment. moment. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Turn there in your Bibles, please. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I want to make this clear to you. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, let me just tell you this, okay? The precision of this passage is impeccable. I wish I had time to explain the full precision, but I'm just gonna make a few comments and try to follow along with me as we just spend a few minutes in this section. Verse six, look at it. Who, that's a relative pronoun and the antecedent is at the end of verse five, meaning Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus Christ, that's the who that who is talking about, right? That's clear. We know who we're talking about. Verse six, though he was in the form, morphe means nature or essence. In other words, he's God. Pretty simple, right? Verse six, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning really two things. Number one, he couldn't leave or, or be, uh, be stripped of. It was impossible for him to change his nature or essence as God. He cannot lose it. It's not something to be fought for. He doesn't have to fight for it. It cannot be lost. He doesn't have to grasp it, in a sense, in that way, but also pointing us to the fact that he was willingly willing to give up his divine privileges. He kept the essence, but gave up the privileges. He kept the essence, but gave up the privileges. Verse 7, how did he do this? He emptied himself. Emptied from the word kenos, where we get the word kenosis, meaning self-emptying. He self-emptied, taking on the form. Now listen now, key word here. This is morphe again, pointing us to essence or nature. 
He took on the form, the essence, the nature of a servant, doulos, slave. In other words, of a human. The human is the slave to who? God. God is the God. Paul says he calls himself a servant or a slave of Christ. Right? That's what we are created for, to be slaves to to God. He took on the essence, the nature of this human, of a human. Verse 7 then, look at this. But emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born, there's the further description, in the likeness of man. This is the word hamios, another aspect. So listen now, the verse is telling us a lot of things here, these verses. He's not only human in nature, but this word points to the fact that he also took on all the essential, essential attributes of humanity. So this is not morphe. This is not divine nature or essence. This is something now further. All of the attributes essential to humanity. In verse 8 then, it says, and being ha- found in human form. This is a different word. This is not morphe or essence. This is not uh, hemoias. This is uh, from the word schema, meaning that he even looked like. This is the physical looking like a man. Verse 8, being found in human form. He looked like even a man. Verse 8, he willingly humbled himself, meaning he submitted himself to God the Father. Verse 8, and in his humanity, he even did what there at the end? What happened? What was the result of his humanity? He died. I mean, this is incredible. So let me put this all together for you. Jesus Christ existed in the nature and the essence of God. He didn't lose that nature. He was willing to give up, though, his divine privileges. While he also became the essence and the nature of man with all of the human necessary attributes, even looking like a human, submitting himself completely to the Father and dying. In other words, though he was fully divine, in his full humanity, Jesus did this. He temporarily and willingly gave up his position in heaven, He gave up his heavenly glory. He temporarily gave up his divine privileges. He gave up his independent divine authority. He even obviously in his appearance as a man gave up his divine beauty. Remember Isaiah 53, 3 says that on earth he had no what? No beauty. That we should desire him. He gave up his unhindered relationship with the father. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine says that he gave up his heavenly riches. All of this was part of his humanity. Of his humanity. And we see this. 
throughout the Gospels, and you probably have these verses ringing in your mind. As I say it, he experienced birth. He experienced physical growth. He experienced exhaustion. He experienced sleep. He experienced hunger, thirst, anger, sorrow, tears, love, joy, temptation, suffering, prayer, and death. He was fully man. One person, two natures, and here is his humanity. Now, why is this so significant, so absolutely crucial? We already talked about the significance and how crucial it was that he was fully God, without which a number of the things I mentioned are absolutely impossible. But here, without it, without full humanity, There can be no human representation. He can't die on behalf of man if he doesn't truly become man. In other words, as Adam was our representative, which led to the curse and death for all men, so also Christ is our representative to pay the penalty for sin on man's behalf, and he brings life. Without his full humanity... His perfect life, which is made possible by his deity, cannot count on behalf of man because it's not a true human life. Can't be our representative. Secondly, most obviously, without a human nature, there's no substitutionary atonement. Therefore, there's no salvation. Therefore, there's no glory to God's grace in the gospel. Therefore, there is no fulfillment of God's redemptive plan that existed before time began. Without Christ being fully human, there's no salvation. Why? Because he needed to be fully God to be an innocent sacrifice. And he needed to be fully man to be able to truly die. And to pay sin's penalty of death. Without this humanity, there is no propitiation. Without this humanity, number three, he can't be our merciful high priest. Who in becoming like his brothers can sympathize with our what? Our weaknesses. And without all of this, God's predetermined plan which revolves around his salvation in Christ, completely fails. So listen now, this virgin birth, yielding this incarnation, yielding this God-man, holds all of Christianity together. You see, Two human parents, he's under the curse, he's a sinner. No human parents, he's only divine, he cannot die. The incarnation yields this God-man. It yields this God-man with both natures, truly and fully. 
and holds together biblical Christianity. It vindicates all of the Bible. Without it, everything before Christ is nothing but empty talk because it can't be fulfilled. Without it, the rest of the New Testament is completely untrue. And this leads to one more thing, and I'm just going to mention it as we get ready to close. The incarnation is crucially significant because it also speaks to the fulfillment of Christ. The fulfillment. Back in our text, Matthew chapter 1. We read in verse 22, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is this incarnation is the fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, When it happened, the incarnation was significant because it was predicted. And listen, you say, well, what's so big about that? Why does that make, why why is that so significant? Because without this incarnation actually happening, the Bible isn't true and the Bible isn't trustworthy. The Bible isn't true. The Bible isn't trustworthy. The incarnation the full deity of Christ, the incarnation, the full humanity of Christ, the incarnation, the trustworthiness of all of Scripture. Everything hangs on the incarnation. Now, what he's saying here in verse 23, again, we could spend just forever here, but this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 14, 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Which says, therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. When's the Messiah coming? Here's your sign. In other words, the Messiah will be this. That's how you know he's here. Behold, the virgin will conceive God-man. Bear a son, actual son, humanity. Shall call his name Emmanuel, which we've learned means God with us. God and man. This is fulfilling. Matthew is saying here that this virgin birth, this incarnation, he's interpreting it. And it's fulfilling here, Isaiah, according to Matthew, this is what the incarnation does. So listen now, friends. Could the incarnation be any more significant? And I'm just scratching the surface to give you an overview. The incarnation, it speaks to the deity of Christ. It speaks to the humanity of Christ, without which... All of Christianity falls apart. What I described to you very briefly, the sinlessness, the perfect life, the substitutionary atoning death, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, God's glory being shown in the grace of the gospel, 
a faithful high priest. I mean, we just go on. All of Christianity falls apart. But it's not only that, but it is the fulfillment of Scripture. Because of the incarnation, we can completely trust God's word as true and trustworthy. Kevin Bowder says rightly then, this is not a tangential doctrine. It's not a doctrine to be located on the periphery of the Christian faith. It is a theological nexus that holds many important doctrines together. So let me close with this, beloved. It is so significant that 1 John 4.2 says that this is what Satan and his demons will attempt to distort with false teaching that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Why? Because of all the reasons I just mentioned. Of course, he distorts this. It glorifies the grace of our God and it fulfills God's eternal plan of redemption. Therefore, then, this doctrine must be clear because it is essential to every facet of the gospel. And you then must believe this doctrine in order to be saved. You can't be saved and deny or not understand the incarnation. So, friends, I encourage you to dwell on this today. Even dwell on the significance of the resurrection, which we talked about this past Sunday. The lordship of Christ. The sufficiency of his sacrifice. The fact that our Savior lives. That we can be regenerated and sanctified. That we will be resurrected from the dead when we die. Those were the points. And then come back to the incarnation and think about the significance here, the deity of Christ and all of its implications. The humanity of Christ and all of those implications. The fulfillment of scripture and all of those implications. These doctrines are essential and it holds Christianity together. I pray that you believe.